Hi, I'm Stacey Jacobson. Thanks so much for joining us today on The Pulse, where we bring you insights on the economy, global markets, and all the complexities of wealth management. In this week's episode, we're talking about clean energy. Recently, the war in Ukraine underlined the fragility of relying on traditional energy supplies. Meanwhile, recent breakthroughs in the science of nuclear fusion suggest that the provision of large amounts of clean energy might be nearer than was thought. It remains to be seen whether the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act will do much to reduce inflation, but it is expected to boost clean energy. So sustainability is clearly a hot topic. Today, I am joined by Beata Kerr, co-head of Investment and Wealth Strategies at Bernstein. Beata recently spoke to Jody Gunderson, a managing principal at AB Carval and leading investor in the clean energy space, about the case for clean energy investments, tax incentives, the role of Inflation Reduction Act, and why she is most excited about investment in this space. We'll be back with Beata right after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Claire Gola, host of Inspired Investing, a podcast for those engaged in philanthropy and the broader social sector. Check out our latest episode with Dan Pallotta, entrepreneur, innovator, and best-selling author of Uncharitable, which offers an unconventional and perhaps controversial take on philanthropy. Listen to Inspired Investing on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to The Pulse by Bernstein. I'm your host, Stacey Jacobson. Today, I'm joined by Beata Kerr, co-head of Investment and Wealth Strategies and host of our own Women in Wealth podcast. Beata, thanks so much for being here today with us. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Now, before we jump into your interview with Jody Gunderson of AB Carval, why is it that the conversation on clean energy is important now? Well, through our acquisition of now called AB Carval, we work closely with our AB Carval partners to understand where their best opportunities were to bring forward to our high net worth clients. And there was no question in their minds that their clean energy offering was the one that they were the most excited about. Why? Fundamentally, because the environment has changed for renewables. They are representing a larger share of power generation in the U.S., and we think they'll grow to probably 50% in 2050. The cost of renewables has come down materially. And then there was the IRA legislation. And no, this is not your personal IRA that has tax deferred growth. This was the Inflation Reduction Act, which actually was the largest legislation in terms of amount and time period with a commitment to renewables and lots of credits and incentives for both individuals and corporations to invest in this space. So the combination of these factors really led Carvel, a longtime investor across many areas of the capital structure, to say that the highest returns they believe are possible in the short term are coming from their clean energy strategy. So it was very timely, and we brought that strategy forward um, as a result, our first strategy alongside Carvel. Right. And it also brings in investors' own personal values. So what do you think makes sustainability such an important value for some investors? Well, I think it's hard to deny that we're in an era of climate change. And I think the investors that care most deeply about clean energy investing have sometimes been affected personally by that climate change, whether they live on the coast or in California. I know that's where you are. You've seen wildfires really at your back door, quite literally. So I think sometimes it's personal. Um, but oftentimes, it's really just a commitment to moving forward for themselves and the next generation 
on what you can control. Where can we make progress? And in a world where there's so much that is out of our control, this is an area where you can decide how you invest. And it's not to say that we're going to have a carbon-free future tomorrow. We're not. And in fact, today's traditional energy producers are playing a large role in actually moving us forward. But I think investors are considering where that next incremental dollar can go. And there's been a lot of development from the technology perspective in our ability to offset climate change and to support alternatives. And so again, back to this question of sustainability and clean energy really go hand in hand. Biata, let's talk about the potential return for ESG and sustainable investing. There's a lot of discussion these days about what the return perspectives may be. Um, what are your thoughts? You're right, Stacey, to ask the question. And you're also right to acknowledge that there's been a lot of quote unquote discussion. There's definitely a lot of controversy. And that discussion is not only in the halls of investment managers and asset allocators and pension plans, but in the halls of Congress. So let me just give you our perspective. When we first started building purpose-driven strategies, we put out the view that these should not require concessionary returns, that there is a way to do this where you're not excluding such a large part of the market and you can still make progress on your third R responsibility in addition to risk and return. And for quite some time, in fact, purpose-driven strategies outperformed non-purpose-driven strategies. And what happened last year was that the energy sector outperformed by almost 70% any other sector. And so technology and healthcare, which are widely owned in purpose-driven strategies, underperform meaningfully. And the outcomes for any active manager in 22 were really determined by how much energy you owned versus how much technology and healthcare you owned. So does that now mean that purpose-driven strategies should forever underperform or is last year's 2022 outcome indicative of a new trend? We don't think so, but we certainly want to acknowledge that last year was a year where those strategies did underperform. We stand by our view that over a market cycle, it is possible to build strategies in a way that does not have a concessionary return. Beata, you conducted this interview with Jody on women and wealth. Why was it that you wanted to have her as a guest? Well, on women and wealth, our focus is elevating and engaging women as they go through their life journey with money. I talk a lot about how talking about money for women has historically been taboo, unfortunately, because it's so important we get comfortable with our money where we're at and talk about it the same way that, guess what? men do, right? But along that journey on women and wealth, in addition to focusing on topics that are quite relevant to one's own financial journey, I've also been very focused on elevating women's voices. And that's both internal to AB and Bernstein Private Wealth, as well as external. So when we acquired Carval, I was so excited to meet Jody Gunderson, one of the few managing principals at the organization a multi-decade investor in this opportunistic credit space, so rare on many levels. And she's done a terrific job also of fostering an inclusive culture and running DEI initiatives at Carvel. So I wanted to talk to her across many angles, really highlighting her career and influence as a tenured investor, as well as the clean energy opportunity. Yeah, it's a, such a great partnership with her. Let's get to your interview with Jody Gunderson of AB Carval and hear more about investing in clean energy. Thanks, Stacey, for having me. It was great to see you.
AB acquired Carval early last year, and Carval is now part of our private investment platform. So I'm really excited to talk to Jody today about her career and her insights really in three decades investing in the credit sector and really as a leader in the clean energy space. So Jody, thank you so much for making time for me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to participate. Do you want to just make the case for the asset class, why renewables are interesting today, why clean energy is like suddenly kind of this huge opportunity? Oh, yeah, happy to. And and you're right. I you wake up in the morning and that is what I'm focused on. It's my current passion, as, as you well know. And when you look out over the next 30 years, as the world makes this transition to clean energy, it's going to be amazing to, to watch it. So many things need to happen, and it's also incredibly capital-intensive. You look at some of the the stats, and it's going to cost somewhere between, I don't know, $90 trillion and $173 trillion to make the transition, which just spells out the opportunity here from an investor's perspective. It's just these are growth markets. It has to happen for purposes of meeting the world's climate goals. So there's a fantastic element of it from a, an impact perspective. And so it's exciting to be involved in it. And then just from a simple economic and commercial point of view, renewables like solar and wind are among the, the cheapest, if not the cheapest, in most parts of the world now, source of electricity generation. And so it stands on its own right from a, an economic perspective. But then you've got all the tailwinds here, as you said, Beata, about the policies, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act here in the U.S. or similar legislation now that European countries are putting in place to respond to the Inflation Re- Reduction Act will help to further scale up uh, renewables and kind of make the, the transition away from, from fossil fuels. So as the markets scale, they'll continue to become even more uh, cost competitive and cheaper over time, which is the point of all that. And do you see a difference between wind and solar? Is there a preference or where there's been more progress made? From our perspective, because we like to, to focus on small and mid-sized um, transactions, we've been more focused on solar just because they're smaller assets, definitionally, or, or can be. A wind transaction is just generally, a, by its nature, a, a large transaction. Those tend to, to be a little bit lower yielding. So we're trying to find more attractive returns than for us that's been in the, the solar and battery storage process. We have done some wind transactions, but more financings, not as, as owner of the assets. But both are expected to be significant drivers uh, globally of the, the transition. So they're both clearly very important, as is battery storage, increasingly important. And how big of a deal is the Inflation Reduction Act? The complete game changer. It, it really is. Over the, the last few years, there's always been the, are those tax credits going to get extended? If they get extended, are they going to get extended for a year or two years? And the Inflation Reduction Act uh, came along last August with $369 billion to address climate change. And the financial support there for renewables is in the form of tax credits. And the tax credits are going to last at least 10 years longer. We need to get the emissions from the power sector 
75% lower than what they were in 2022. Um, so the tax credits will run for a long time. They're very substantial. And that gives developers and investors the certainty that they need to move forward with projects. So like I said, solar and wind, they're cost competitive in most cases without subsidies like this. But the tax credits will accelerate the, the transition because it makes it even more economically compelling. So in short, the, the recent legislation, like you said, game changer, it was the magnitude of it and also the certainty of it. I know there's been a lot of debate about our renewables, a, a fleeting trend, you know, could this all get rolled back under a different administration? But I think you and others have really commented, no, this is the real deal and this is long term and that's making it very possible and in fact leading to a giant uptick, it seems, in projects getting done and financings being available, right? So I just want to cement that because I think that's where we get a lot of questions and it does feel like it, it's a real, there's a real permanence to it is what you're saying. There is. And there's some other interesting elements of it that are very helpful. Some of these bonus tax credits that are out there that make it a fair and just transition for all parts of society. For example, you can earn additional tax credits if you locate your project in a, what's referred to in an energy community, meaning a community that has a lot of fossil fuel employment. The point here is let's make the transition fair for people that are in the fossil fuel sector so they can make the transition to good jobs in the, the renewables and clean energy space. That's very powerful um, from a, a social perspective. You can get bonus credits if you locate your project in a low-income community. That's great about it. And uh, so it has appeal in, in so many ways. And in red states and blue states, I think it's quite positive for every constituency, let's say, with, with all those, those bells and whistles. As we've gotten to know each other, you have talked about this idea that you love the quote unquote cat and mouse aspect of doing these deals in the private markets. And you already alluded to the mystery of the bid and waiting to see if you won and how competitive that is. So you've obviously done a ton of negotiating in your career. So what are your tips for all of us? What's your secret to the art of the deal? And I think the be yourself notion is is a useful guide here, as it is with with most things in life. And for me, the call it the art of the the deal is largely around being patient and being comfortable, letting the negotiation play out, let it evolve, let it unfold, let it breathe where it needs to to breathe. And so that has been key for me in being effective. And also, I think um, being somewhat uh, analytical, like grounding our positions in good logic and good analysis and good data versus having a more, let's say, blustery style, which might be effective for, for somebody else. Everybody's different, that's for sure. And maybe I'll um, conclude uh, here, Beata, by saying uh, being trustworthy, I think, is the most important thing. And I think maybe I come by it naturally, what you tell me. Um, but but that is, I think, key to getting anything done and being effective. You've just got to, to, to be trustworthy. Can you just give us some color on your career and some of the things that have really kept you going for this long in this specific space? 
Okay, happy to be on And I, I do love it, and I've, I've always loved it, actually. And it's just been an incredible experience. And I think, for me, the, the thing that has kept it exciting all these years is our multi-strategy approach to investing and the, the global investment scope and, and mandate that we have. It's really an incredible sandbox for an investment professional and we just see a lot of things, um, just to, to give you a sense of the, the range of things. One day we might find ourselves investing in a restructuring of an India steel company. The next day we might be trying to buy some high-risk assets from a bank in Spain. And the next day we might be making a more, call it plain vanilla investment in investment-grade corporate bonds in the U.S. in the midst of a, a dislocation. And so it's the ever-changing element of the, the markets and where's the opportunity and the broad scope of investment activity here at the, the firm. It just requires a global perspective, and, and that's a dimension that I've always loved about it. Big thanks to Beata Kerr for coming on the show today, and thanks to everyone for tuning in. You will hear from us again on April 11th, Don't forget to subscribe to The Pulse by Bernstein wherever you get your podcast to ensure you never miss a beat. I'm your host, Stacey Jacobson, wishing you a great rest of the week.